0: Uh, the Easter season is upon us, and um, it's been a lot, of, a lot of fun thinking and praying and really fixing our, our hearts and our minds on the resurrection and thinking about Jesus, and um, we are going to be looking at some of the different attributes and actions of Christ relating to Easter over the next few weeks. Um, today we're looking at Jesus the righteous, and so we're going to be considering the value and the significance of of Jesus' righteousness. So the Bible says that Jesus never sinned, right? In fact, the Bible even claims that Jesus was perfect. And um, we actually see this in our passage today. We're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, just one verse, verse 21. And the scripture will come up on the screen if you don't have a Bible with you. It says, God made Christ who never sinned to be the offering for our sin. So that we could be made right with God through Christ. now, Church, that's a a life-altering, world-changing truth that we look at today as we read that passage. And so now, let's pray together and ask the Lord to open our hearts to his word and to his truth. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, God, for the good seed, which is your word, that you sow pray this morning, God, that your, that seed, your word, would, would fall on fertile soil. Thank you, God, that we can know truth and the truth about who you are, who Christ is, and who we are in Christ. And we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would teach us and instruct us this morning. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so Easter is all about Jesus the righteous. And it's all about Jesus the righteous rescuing humanity, that Easter really is a rescue operation. And we know all the way starting back in the beginning of the Bible, in the book of Genesis, that God created us, created us in his image. And one of the things, what that means in one way is that we are able to discern the difference between right and wrong. Uh, different from other animals. We're able to, to have a conscience, and, and we're able to choose good behavior, poor behavior. And so we were given this freedom, this choice. We were given the privilege of choosing to be with God and o- obeying the laws of God, and we were also given the freedom to, to choose to be separated from God. We were given the freedom to choose to break God's laws. And as we know, as the story goes, Adam and Eve chose sin and separated humanity from God. We're born into this sin. And, um, you know, as you all, I'm sure, can attest, we uh, continue the family tradition of sin. So, if God was to restore humanity to himself, if God was to bring us back into that relationship for which he created us, that that God with man intimacy that we see and read about in, in the Garden of Eden, God would have to deal with our sin. And our culture doesn't like to hear about sin. It doesn't like to talk about sin and righteousness. And one of the main reasons is because the average person, most of us, probably all of us in this room, uh, think that we're good people. If someone said, do you think you're a good person, most people would say yes. And I was reminded of this this last week, but um, back when I was in uh, summer camp, as a, as a high schooler, which to the high schoolers of this church feels like it was the beginning of time, back in the 1980s, right? Um, I remember one night coming in, and the, the guy who was preaching started off in a funny way, and he goes, How many of you think you're good people? Are you a good person or are you a bad person? And I remember thinking about that, going, oh, this is going to be some kind of a trick. I was used to getting, going to these types of things and getting all beat up over my sin and stuff. So I'm like, all right, I'm a good person. What he got for me, right? And, and he starts off by just listing the laws of God. Have you ever lied? Oh, well, yeah, I've lied. Well, then you're, you're a liar. You've broken God's law, right? Have you ever stolen? Yeah, I've stolen. Well, you've broken God's law. You're, you're a thief. Have, have you ever looked upon another person with lust in your heart, right? He's talking to a room full of high schoolers, so, you know, no one, no one probably raised their hands, but, you know, we all know what he's talking about. <laughs> Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, if you look upon another person with lust in your heart, it, that, you, you have the heart of an adulterer. That's, that's a law of God that you've broken. In the same way with anger in our heart towards others, Jesus says a very similar thing in Matthew 5 about having the heart of a murderer. Now, I knew I wasn't a perfect person, but I had no idea that I was like one of those Old Testament people that just broke God's law, that went out and just broke God's law. See, I had a serious heart issue. And for the first time in my life, I was able to see my sin. I wasn't able to see this kind of sin, this subtle sin in my life before. Because in my life and the way I thought about sin, if I didn't hurt anybody, then I hadn't done anything wrong. If there was no victim, then I wasn't really sinning. It's just some private thing, right? I wasn't able to see my sin before. But at this camp, it hit me that every time I sin, I'm breaking God's law. And we do hurt other people when we sin. sin. That's true. But first and foremost, sin is a violation of God's law. Now, God gave us his laws. God gave us these instructions, if you will, to glorify God, but also God's laws and God's instructions for us are to be a blessing to humanity. So as we follow God's law, God is glorified and humanity is blessed. And when I sin, I violate God's law, whether I'm hurting other people or it's just something I'm doing in my heart. When I violate God's law, it removes me from a place of blessing with God. Violating God's law also brings hurt to other people around me. I've I've removed myself and the people around me. I've removed us from the sphere of God's blessing. And so hurting others and relational tension, broken relationships, trust, unforgiveness, those are all byproducts of my decision to break God's law. And it makes seeking and extending forgiveness Very complicated because what we do is we try to deal with the symptoms of sin. We try to deal with the hurt people around us, apologizing and trying to make up for what we've done wrong without dealing with the cause of the sin. And so often in my life, I find it difficult for people to forgive me or I find it difficult in my heart to forgive them because I go, that's awesome that you're apologetic right now. That's cool that you've seen that you hurt me. And I don't say this out loud because I'm not dishonest. But I think you're probably going to do it again. And so it's hard for me to be genuine in my forgiveness of you. Because we recognize that there's something else going on. It's not just an offense against us. History is full of examples of this. Some tragic examples of this. Uh, Simon Wiesenthal, the, the great Nazi hunter, right? I'm sure you guys have heard of Simon Wiesenthal. He, one of his books he wrote is called The Sunflower. And it had a subtitle to it. It's the Sunflower on the Possibilities and Limits of Forgiveness. And in this book, Wiesenthal wrestles with his internal struggle to extend forgiveness to others. It was like a real thing for him. And before you judge him or think too critically of him, you got to hear him out a little bit. So um, he's, in, he's a Jew, in, is an Austrian Jew, and uh, was, was arrested and brought to Poland. And he's in this concentration camp, the fourth or fifth camp he had been in, outside of the city of Lvov. And he's a forced laborer, this intellectual guy. He's a forced laborer. He's been in for years. His whole family's dead working in this factory. One day, he's out at, his, out at his work, you know, and one of the guards grabs him, brings him into another building, throws him into this small room. And in this small room is this young Nazi soldier. About, he's, he describes him as being about 18, 19 years old. And it's obvious that this kid is about dead. Sitting there, bleeding out, whatever, mortally wounded. The young soldier had asked to speak to a Jew before he died. So here, and and of of God's great sovereignty, here sits Simon Wiesenthal, this huge thinker of our time, in this room with this, basically this teenager who's dying. And so the teenager looks at him and he says, Will you forgive me? Can you forgive me? Knowing what what the, the Nazis had done to the Jews, knowing what he himself had done, probably was working at the camp himself, being there as a soldier, whatever, and so here he stands, this depressed inmate who'd lost his family, covered in body life, emaciated, working as a slave, standing before this dying young man. And he's agonizing over this request, made out of sheer desperation of a dying man. And he's wrestling as he's thinking, only the more, most offended party has the right to forgive. How can I forgive on behalf of of people who are, are dead, on behalf of people who are way more victimized than I have them. The most victimized by the Nazis were dead. This is what he was thinking. How can the living extend forgiveness on behalf of the dead? How can those who have not been murdered extend forgiveness on behalf of those who had? And in that small room with that dying young man, as he's processing this, wrestling with this request, unfortunately for him, he got up quietly and just left the room not able to extend forgiveness. after the war, Wiesenthal wrestled with this over and over. He wrote this book, and here's a quote from the book. He says, The crux of the matter is, of course, the question of forgiveness. Forgetting is something that time alone takes care of, but forgiveness is an act of volition, and only the sufferer is qualified to make the decision. And he sent this book out, to academics all over, all over the world, and he says, was I right? Did, was my behavior right here? Did I do the right thing? Should I have forgiven this guy? And I'll be honest with you, I can't take issue with his insight and his logic that only the most offended party has the right to forgive. That's, that's a very logical conclusion to come to. For Simon Wiesenthal to feel forgiveness, the Nazi would first need to deal with the most offended person. And what that means is he'd somehow have to get dead people to forgive him. <laughs> so for Simon Wiesenthal, what that meant was there was never an end to his longing for reconciliation. There was never an end for his, his, his ability to find peace. The Holocaust would haunt him for the rest of his life. There's one critical detail that he leaves out of his reasoning, though. And it's a, it's a detail that's vivid throughout Scripture, but it's seen probably most clearly in the life of a young king of Israel, King David. It's seen in the book of 2 Samuel, another story you know really well. David seduces a young woman. King David seduces a young married woman, Bathsheba. The woman's husband, Uriah, is out fighting on the battlefront, right? Soon, Bathsheba discovers she's pregnant, and she comes and she tells David. And so David summons for the husband, brings him back, Assuming okay, he's going to go home. He's probably going to sleep with his wife, and I'll get away with this. Well, Uriah doesn't go home. He's he's uh, he's too honorable a man. While his mates are out on the field right now uh, in battle, he's like, why should I enjoy the pleasures of home? And so he sleeps out at the city gates. And David, kind of frustrated, writes a letter, tells Uriah, take this back out to your commanding officer. David hikes back out, gives it to his commanding officer. And the, the command is to go forward into the battle, retreat, leave Uriah. Of course, the battle heats up. That happens. Uriah's dead. David wastes no time marrying Bathsheba. He thinks he's gotten away with it. The whole mess. No apologies needed. And David may have fooled a whole lot of people. David may have fooled the entire nation of Israel, in fact. But God was no fool. And when I read that story, I realize I might be able to fool a lot of people when I sin, but I can't fool God, right? Because God sends the prophet Nathan, which is a whole other sermon. But the point is that God knows the thoughts and desires of our hearts. God knows that David, what David had done, and God confronts David. And with a heart of repentance... With, with a heart that's been convicted of sin, with a heart that realizes that, yeah, I've hurt a lot of people. In fact, I've killed one. Listen to who David addresses as the most offended party. Psalm 51 verse 4, speaking to God, King David says, against you and you alone I have sinned. I have done what is evil in your sight. That's a beautiful psalm sometime if you want to sit down and read all of Psalm 51. But a quick reading of this psalm might leave you thinking that David was mistaken because David had offended everyone. How could he have only sinned against God? But see, David was right. And this is what Simon Wiesenthal was missing. What makes sin so heinous and horrible is that it is first and most importantly an offense against God. In our natural state, we are cut off from God because of our sin. And because we're cut off from God, we're cut off from the life of God. We're cut off from the blessings of God. And so apart from God, we're not a blessing to one another, are we? When we don't obey God's laws and we've been separated from God, this is, this is pre-gospel here, when we live our lives separated from God, we're not a blessing to other people around us. God is first and foremost, fundamentally, the most offended party when we sin. The beautiful thing about our passage today is that we see that God has made it possible for us to be completely reconciled to him. We are brought back to God. And so the big question is how. How can God forgive us? An absolutely holy God. A God that separates himself from sin, right? How can God forgive? ever justify sinners. How can he be just and justifier? How is that possible? Our passage says that God made Christ who never sinned to be the offering for our sin so that we could be made right with God through Christ. It's the most powerful truth in all of Scripture. It embraces and explains how sinners can be reconciled to God. The truth of this one brief sentence solves the profound dilemma of how God can be reconciled with sinners. And it's a simple plan. And it's important and it's significant for every Christian to understand this and to be able to not just preach it and share it with others, which is vital, but to preach it to ourselves and receive it ourselves even every day. And there's just three simple things that we see in God's plan in this passage today. The first thing we see is that God initiates the plan. God is the initiator. Only God has the right and the authority to help us. Only God can get us out of the place where we find ourselves. There would be no reconciliation with God unless he initiated it. There's literally nothing that we can do. And humanity, over time, all throughout history, has attempted to do something to be right with God. Men and women have invented gods to appease with their own good behavior. And so they create a god, and then they create a, a, some kind of legalistic system that people can live up to. And you just, well, maybe if we just lower the bar from holiness down to, you know, just leaving food on a shelf or whatever, praying to something. And for, uh, there, there are hundreds and hundreds of these religions exist. And all religions are simply man producing a plan to initiate reconciliation with God. The fatal flaw of the world religions, no matter what the name of the religion is, is that man cannot approach God on man's terms. Only God can make us right with him. And so the good news is that God has initiated the plan. The second thing we see in this passage is God provides the sacrifice. Justice requires a punishment. Now, a corrupt judge might pardon some criminals but then punish other criminals for doing the same exact thing. Our justice system is full of that and people are stoked because they didn't have to do 20 years, they only had to do a few months, but this, the next guy that comes in, or, or you hear about judges that are giving political favors to this guy but not that guy because he doesn't agree with them or whatever. You try to make a political statement by ruling one way and not another way. You see, humanity is not just. Our justice system is not a justice system. Only God is just. And when we break God's law... The only just payment for that isn't just forgive and forget, just payment for that is what the penalty for the law. Otherwise, there would be no justice. There has to be justice. A just judge applies the the law equally, and God is a just judge. He doesn't just pardon, he will not pardon sin unless justice has been satisfied. And I run into this all the time in my parenting, always, I'm, I'm horrible with this. I've got a four-year-old right now, and she has glasses, so it's like the cutest combination in the whole world. And she could just be scheming, and then she'll, you know, do something she knows she's not supposed to do. And then I'll discover she's got this really crazy plan to hide it, and then she lies about it, you know. And then she, like, blames it on someone else, but I'll be tired or whatever, and she's just kind of smiling. I'll be like, oh, just go put that back, don't worry about it, you know. But my kids that are like becoming teenagers now, they leave two jackets in the living room. And I'm like, Gabe, what are you doing? This isn't a locker room. Come on, we all have to share this. You know, it's like, I'm not just, you know? Like, it would be clearly when we see a heart issue, there's an issue there. And someone that's just, you know, throws something on the ground or whatever once or twice. Like, but we're, we're not just. Justice isn't my default. Someone must pay for the laws that we break. And we see this in the Old Testament. In the book of Leviticus, we see that the business of being forgiven of sin is a messy business. It's messy. It's bloody. There's burning animals. It's very strict. The rules are very orderly. It was very significant to God and important that very specific steps be taken in order to achieve forgiveness. But we look at that sacrificial system, that ancient system of, of trying to be made right with God. And at the center of that system, we see a lamb, the Passover lamb, right? The, the lamb was, had to be uh, without spot, without blemish. It had to be a perfect animal without defect. And we see that the Passover lamb is a picture of the real substitute who would be the perfect lamb of God. And so God provided the sacrifice. God provides his lamb as the final sacrifice for our sin, fulfilling the need for animals. See, the final sacrifice for our sin, the one that could actually stand in our place, had to be man. You couldn't substitute a man for an animal, or that wouldn't be just. Not only did this sacrifice have to be a man, he had to be sinless. It had to be a sinless man. So we needed a sinless man. We needed like a God man to be this sacrifice. It's the only just substitute. And that's exactly what God designed. God made Christ who never sinned to be the offering for our sin. And so God provides this sacrifice to meet the demands of justice. It couldn't just be anyone. You can't just drag some other criminal in there. Someone else who has a debt. A bank robber can't be brought in to pay the penalty for a car thief, right? They, they both have penalties that need to be paid. Humanity couldn't come up with a debt-free substitute to pay our debt. And so God offers us his own son to stand in our place of punishment. God's son does not have a debt of sin to pay. And I love facts and history. And one of the things I love about statements like you know, Jesus was sinless, is like, it's actually like a proven historical fact that Jesus was sinless. You could go through, there's lots of different ways you could go through, but I'll just quickly list a list of of places where we see people given ample opportunity to come up with a conviction, some kind of a sin. In John chapter eight, verse 46, Jesus even says to religious leaders and the entire crowd before him, he says, which one of you convicts me of sin? Which one of you convicts me of sin? Not just raising your voice and trying to make some kind of a political statement out of me, but which one of you actually convicts me of sin? It says it was silent. No one could come up with anything. Pilate, Pontius Pilate, this cynical, vicious, cruel, ungodly pagan holding court. Luke chapter 23, verse 4. He looks at the chief priests with Jesus standing before him and he says, I can find no guilt in this man. And then two more times, verse 14, he says the same thing. I've found no guilt in this man. Verse 22, again, almost like he's losing his patience. He's like, why does this continue? He goes, what evil has this man done? I have found in him no guilt. So they nail Jesus to the cross. Two criminals are nailed up on crosses next to him. One criminal turns to the other one and he says, we suffer justly. He says to the other thief, we're receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And finally, we see the Roman centurion who's standing there witnessing all of this. This is Luke 23, verse 47. And he says, certainly this man was innocent. An innocent man was killed. History and the Bible both prove that Jesus is the righteous Lamb of God. So God initiates the plan. He provides the sacrifice. And this is the important part. God's plan is thorough. The plan doesn't leave anything out. There are no loose ends. Look at what God has done. He says that God made Christ who never sinned to be the offering for our sin so that we could be made right with God through Christ. What he's saying is by faith, we've been given the righteousness of Christ. Where I deserve punishment for my sin, but God has replaced my punishment with blessing. It's this this crazy upside-down exchange. I'm no longer a rebel separated from God. I'm now right with God. Because Jesus has stood in my place of punishment. Because Jesus has stood where I deserve to stand, in a place of punishment, I now stand in a place of righteousness and blessing before God. Listen, if you're a Christian, you've traded places with someone who's never done anything wrong in the eyes of God. You no longer stand as a sinful individual. You now stand as a son or a daughter of God. When we approach God, those are the terms by which God sees us. Listen to how the Apostle Paul describes this amazing truth in Ephesians chapter 1. I'll just read verses 3 through 5. It says, All praise to God the Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ. Even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. Isn't that an amazing passage? Hey, while that's up on the screen, if you're having trouble walking in that or receiving that on a daily basis, take a picture of that. Because, Christian, that is who you are in Christ. Look at that passage. Look at what it says God has done for you. It says that you're blessed with every spiritual blessing. It says that you're united with Christ. It says that God has always loved you. He's always desired for you to be righteous. God has always desired for you to be with him. It says that God has adopted you into his own family. God has brought you close to him. And then finally it says that God is pleased to have done this. He's pleased to have chosen you. And probably the most powerful part of that, 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 those crazy truths I just read, is the fact that God has already done this. This is a past tense thing. That's something that's already happened. We see in the Bible that God loves us so much that he sent Jesus the righteous to die and pay the just penalty for our sins. God is just, and he justly paid the penalty for me. Jesus didn't just die for me either. This is the amazing part. and This, this is an important little detail. It's not just a little theological thing that's kind of interesting. Th- this is significant. Jesus didn't just die for me. Jesus was separated from the Father for me also. As Jesus hung on the cross... All the sins of God's children, all the sins of every Christian that would ever live were placed on him at that moment. And Jesus the righteous became draped in humanity's sins. You remember what happened at that point, right? This is usually a Good Friday sermon. What happened at that point is God the Father turns his back on Christ, the Son. Jesus the righteous has become Jesus the Lamb who's been placed on the altar now. And he's standing in for us in our place of punishment. And he's standing in for us in our place of separation. And God turns his back on his own son. This is significant. Because in that moment, Jesus experiences the back of his father's head one time. So that I will never have to look at the back of God's head. One time. Done. God will never leave you. He will never turn from you. He's already turned from your sin. Do you get that? Do you see? I know you've heard this a thousand times probably if you've been going to church your life like I have. But do you get it? Is that a truth? Is that a reality for you today? God never turns his back to you. And we see this this picture, Jesus the righteous paying the penalty. And from the cross, this place of agony, this place of shame, hanging naked in front of crowds of people, struggling to breathe, bleeding profusely, having been whipped and nailed up onto this cross, Jesus cries out in a strong voice, And these are the words that have to penetrate my thick skull over and over again. Jesus cried out, it is finished. It is finished. He wasn't like playing paramedic and calling his death at that point. What Jesus was doing was declaring that the purpose for the righteous lamb of God to be strung up on this horrible altar in front of all these people, that work at that moment was finished. At that moment, death was finished. At that moment, sin was finished. At that moment, Satan was finished. There was complete victory. God's plan is thorough. He covered all the bases. It's a finished work. And often, we live our lives in light of that. Jesus' confident proclamation, it is finished. It's so easy for me to fall into the mentality where if you were to say, gosh, Billy, are those things all true of you? I'd be like, yeah, you know, it's it's finished, right? Right? Like, it's finished. Let me go to my Bible app. Yeah, no, it's finished. You know, like this kind of, like, no, it is finished. See, our, our weak knees in this moment that's what can redirect our, the course of our life. We're either confidently walking in our identity in Christ or we're constantly arguing with our flesh and allowing Satan a voice in our life. And we'll kind of waver in and out of what is true, in and out of what is finished. Jesus declared it is finished one time. This work of making you righteous before God is a finished work. And listen, this is what's so important God impresses this on me all the time. He says, Billy, I don't get to hear the voice of God like that. He doesn't really say it. But he goes, it doesn't matter how you feel. (laughs) How I feel doesn't make something true or not true. Sometimes I don't feel right with God. But it also doesn't matter what I've done. Because Jesus has already done everything necessary to make me right with God. So if you're in Christ, you are already right with God. See, this is something, it's a, such a simple truth, but we complicate it. And The other day as we were kind of talking together, uh, some guys putting this together, uh, Chad, one of the elders here, loves to just simplify things right come up with like the most simple way to 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 state something and he goes you know billy i think what you're trying to say here is that this is something we just need to believe and receive sometimes no matter how you feel and what your emotions are telling you you just need to say you know this is something i need to just believe and receive as being true for me now don't get me wrong we still put effort into our faith we put a lot of effort into our faith don't we Being a Christian in our culture is hard. It's difficult. But the effort we put into our faith is different. We're not proving our righteousness to God. We're not working for God's approval anymore. We are free from having to work to be right with God. And we have to live in this reality. Our righteousness is not something that we work for. Jesus the righteous has performed perfectly and justly on our behalf. And so today, if you're striving to prove yourself to God, maybe that's something that that your parents or, or some other person in authority in your life has put on you, this performance thing. Listen, God is completely pleased and satisfied with who you are in Christ. You don't need to strive and struggle to please God. God is pleased with who you are in Christ. So now we can put our efforts into worshiping God into enjoying the the freedom that we have in Christ. We we get to enjoy walking with God. We're now free to hear the voice of God. Christians, today we've been given the righteousness of Christ. This is something we need to believe. It's something we need to receive. And it's something we need to walk in. And so this, this morning, if you're weary from sin... Or maybe you're tired of striving. You're tired of striving to please God. Maybe you're sick of feeling far from God. Jesus the righteous said these words. He said, come to me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Put your faith in Christ. Jesus is the gift from God, and it's offered to every one of us. Now, I know so many of you guys are, have already chosen to follow Christ with all your heart, but I'm telling you, it is such a blessing to receive that gift every day, every day, reminding myself of who I am in Christ, reminding myself of the pleasure of the Father to choose me. When, when we adopted our daughter, she couldn't speak, okay? She was pretty cute. She kind of drooled a lot, right? But all she would do is, like, eat and poop. There was no, like, big benefit. To the, it's not like she argued her case and proved her worthiness to be our first child, right? We chose her. We paid a lot of money to adopt her. We had to hire a lawyer. We had to do a lot of paperwork. We had to go to the court. We had to do a lot of stuff. I had to stand in line for seven and a half years, it felt like, at the social security office to change her name. I mean, it was a lot of effort to adopt her. And, and that's awesome. We did that. I mean, that's... That's God doing that. My point is that she didn't have to earn her adoption into our family. And it's the same way with you, children of God. God has done all of the work. God has paid all of the price. And today he's saying, come and be with me. Come and be who you are as my adopted child. Don't be that that kid that doesn't know who they are, doesn't know who their father is, doesn't know where they belong. You've been put into a family. You have a people. Jesus is the gift from God that the Father offers to us every day. Receive this gift. And today, I just want to challenge us as a church to worship God as a child. Not the rebellious child. Not not the, the, the nagging child that you're like, gosh, sometimes it's really hard to put up with you. No, We're the righteous child. God looks at us and he sees the perfect righteousness of Christ. And so we get to enjoy the presence of God, knowing that if you are in Christ, God approves of you. And so as we respond in worship, we respond to a God who deserves our worship. And so let's give him everything we have. He's deserving of our lives. He's deserving of our plans. Jesus the righteous has made us right with God. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word and I thank you for this truth. I thank you for the righteous lamb that you sacrificed so that we could know you, so that we could be brought back to you. We thank you, God, for the work that you are doing in each of our hearts, in each of our minds, in each of the families and the communities represented in this room here this morning. Father, together we just say, Lord, give us, give us belief where maybe there's unbelief right now. Give us the faith to walk this out. Give, it us, give us the confidence and the hope and the joy to walk as a righteous child of God. Thank you, God, for Jesus. Thank you for the freedom that we have in Christ. We worship you with all of our hearts now. In Jesus name. Amen.